Welcome again to Back to the Future Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie Back to the Future Part 2, one biff slacking minute at a time. I'm Scott Corelli, and Nick Jimenez is still on vacation, but still with us, joining us for Thursday is uh, David Campo and Paul Montgomery. Welcome. Hello. I'm actually from Friday, but I've decided to time travel back to minute from minute 80 to minute 79 to join you on this show. It's classic oh, wow. Dave. I have some, yeah, I have, yeah. I have some insider knowledge, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to save it and try to blend in uh, with 19, with, I'm sorry, 1979, minute 79. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're from a different year as well. So not just Friday, yeah. <laughs> but Friday from 1979. That's right. Um, so uh, today we're going back to minute 79, which begins with uh, Strickland saying sports statistics, interesting subject, and ends with Marty following Strickland into his office. Um, so uh, Strickland starts this minute by what what I love about like the the juiciness of what Strickland is saying here is that he read the cover but now he's flipping through the magazine and knows that it's not what the cover is saying it is and is talking about, <laughs> about like he's just talking about sports statistics and he's asking Biff if this is homework and Biff know it, knows that he's been caught. So now he just doesn't care. So he's, you know, Oh, it's not homework cause I'm not at home. Um, <laughs> and that is a much more typical Biff reply. We talked last time about the savviness of his, uh, uh, the canniness of his reply before, but in this minute, it's back to the classic. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not at home, you know, homework thing. So right, right, because <laughs> he, he knows he's been caught, and right. and I, I really love this moment as a repeated viewing moment because when you're watching this movie the first time, you think this is a legitimate conversation that's happening. Sure. Watching it again, you realize Strickland knows it's porn. Biff knows that Strickland knows it's porn. And they're both sort of like feigning innocent against each other. They're like kind of like playing chicken, yeah. um, <laughs> verbal chicken. And uh, I really I really like that as a as a moment. That's a good point. The audience at this point doesn't know on the first view and neither does our Marty here. Uh, right. But. But, you know, so it's one of those rare cases where, you know, or not rare cases, but it's just one of those cases where the audience is a step behind and it sort of mm -hmm. allows for that nice surprise later. And uh, and and yeah, Strickland snaps. Yep. Uh, he just he, he straight up shoves Biff. Um, this is not the thing kind of thing that uh, I, I feel like uh, this would not happen today. No, <laughs> it, it, it would totally happen today. But then you. You'd pan the camera and there'd be four students with uh, iPhones held up. Uh, yep. And <laughs> getting it on video. No one trying to stop it, was, but uh, to document it at least. Document it, right. I think that was just in the latest issue of Archie, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that makes sense. We, we, this is the second time we brought up Archie uh, this week. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, he really pushes, he pushes Biff and he calls him a slacker. And this is, this is actually the first time I think we've heard him call Biff a slacker. We've always heard him call Marty and George mm -hmm. slackers, but never Biff. And Biff is the legitimate slacker. Right. Um, right. You know, where, where George is just kind of a loser. He's not really a slacker. Uh, you know, he was, he, he's using his lunch, 
his lunchtime to write short stories. I mean, he's, you know, he's playing like double time. <laughs> Marty is a selective slacker. Um, right. It's, it's weird. Like you don't think of a slacker. I mean, he does grab on to the backs of trucks to pull him uh, when he's on a skateboard sometimes. Um, so that's, but, but he also hangs out in his free time with a scientist. So you don't <laughs> consider that being slacker material slacker behavior yeah but he also plays guitar he also plays guitar giant amps that's a little slackerish i guess he's very driven in certain things but in mm-hmm. others he's just got he's, make the he's argument got, uh, he's got different kinds of priorities you know yeah. although technically as you pointed out maybe i'm getting this all scrambled but this marty we don't know. Well, actually, never mind. Forget it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> it's who he called this. He didn't call this Marty a slacker yet. Because okay, never mind. <laughs> Withdrawn. <laughs> I'm getting my alpha beta Martys confused now. Yeah, uh, it, it happens. <laughs> it's, it's inevitable, Dave. <laughs> I'll be whimpering in the corner in the next episode now. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I, I really, I, I like this moment. Um. What I what I'm not crazy about is like this. This is not a thing that you see a lot in movies because it doesn't it doesn't come up very often. But uh, Strickland's Strickland's uh, receding hairline uh, uh, wig is <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's a it's just a stripe of hair around his wrapped <laughs> around his head. It's um, really distracting. It's really yeah. It's really distracting. It does not look good at all. You can see the netting. Uh, that's like attaching it to his to his head because again those are details that they never thought you would get to see. Well, uh, is the home video was I mean was VHS it wasn't it wasn't high end quality. Is the intention for it to be real hair or is the intention that he's at at one what, point like, he he, he wore to have a toupee? That... <laughs> well, I guess Sorry. it's not. Yeah, it's not a full toupee. You're a really bad toupee. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's like, yeah. but he's like realistic about it. He's like, no one's gonna <laughs> think I have a full head of hair, so I'm gonna give myself a partial toupee, <laughs> some dignity. I don't. Know. The balding he, toupee. <laughs> honestly, it looks like the hair that's on his head was reused for the Yoda puppet in Phantom Menace. <laughs> uh, it's, it looks really similar. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, oh man, it's uh, yeah, it's not that, good. It's not good. Prof- I'm, I'm like scrolling through it through the still images and that profile shot of him. It just it's so bad. It looks really yeah. bad. It's and, and and if you did have that sort of balding thing, I I think in 1950s this guy he'd be in bad need of a haircut. It's almost like a mullet in the back. Yeah, you look at his profile shot, man. He he would have to. He would be ridiculed for wearing it like that. It's too long. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's why he's, he's so grumpy. He needs a haircut. <laughs> maybe he, he was supposed to get a haircut that day, but he forgot about the enchantment under the sea dance. Some other some other teacher was supposed to cover for him, but they they let him down, the slackers, and now he's stuck chaperoning this dance. I really do like Biff's. He's really taken aback by the shove and by the he. he I, I mean, I'm looking at that moment again, and it really is um, a, a scary moment for him because he's sort of like I could, like you get the sense he feels like he could take this guy, but this is an adult and you're not supposed to do that. But it's really offensive then, to, to have to kind of back down like that. So he 
there's something very odd in that in, in the acting. In that and it's moment. also like it's like it's after school. It's um it's it's in this out of the way area. So like, how far is this guy going to go, knowing that you know he yeah. isn't necessarily being watched? There's something kind of dangerous about it, you know. With that shove, it really does it. Yeah, I like this reaction there. I don't know, just looking at it. You know, he's like, did yeah, Strickland? What did Strickland serve in World War One? Yeah, and mm-hmm. is he gonna bayonet me? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a good. I mean, yeah, Biff Biff is really good at at reaction stuff. I I I find that um that's something that Zemeckis is a big fan of is. Uh, actor finding actors who are really good at reaction things because he's he's he always fills his movies with with actors who can give really big reactions to stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Christopher Lloyd, Michael J. Fox, Leah Thompson, and 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 him like they they all Thomas L. Wilson they all have these the the capability of giving these really big reactions to things. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I, I like that. I like yeah, that that's yeah. sort of his go-to move with his, with the actors he chooses to be in these projects. And we, we have talked about how it, it, it lends this cartooniness in some ways to it, but I think it, that it works in this. And in this example, I don't think it's, it's cartoony at all, but you're right. Like big reactions. Uh, and I hadn't thought about that before, but I, I do like that. I, I think those big reactions have a lot to do with why, back to the the back to the future movies and specifically especially the first one mm-hmm. uh why kids like them so much because really when you watch back to the future there's nothing really there for kids i mean the delorean's cool but it's really just about this kid trying to get his parents to fall in love in the 50s yeah. i mean there's nothing there that like i i imagine that would really uh uh put a kid's imagination into overdrive. But I think that the cartoony quality makes it really, um, really interesting for kids. Well, it's, I mean, and, and it's all, I mean, it's also like Marty from the beginning is like Marty, like he's the ultimate cool dude. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's not concerned about, you know, day to day stressors really. Um, he's, you know, pretty, pretty kind of suave guy has it together. Um, but he's also relatable. Like he's not so cool you know, that he's uh, inhuman, like he, you know, is involved in explosions. Um, and uh, so he's, you know, he's the ticket for for the viewer, especially for for a young viewer. Like you, you want a friend like Marty or you want to be like Marty. Yeah. And so you follow his travails through this whole thing. You've got me thinking about it because I was a kid when this movie came out. So I'm sure I went to see this in the theater um, and and you've got, now Scott, you've got me thinking about what my reaction was to it or how I did relate to it. Um, I I was I would have been a teenager, like a little younger than 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 Marty in these movies, I suppose. But um, I, you know, I, I I think a little bit of is what you guys are talking about. It, it definitely is. He's a guy that you can relate to um, at the beginning. He's just in completely over his head. But there's a lot of so the adventure aspect is you know the stakes are clear. You you've got to get back. You've got to you know just get back out of this. It's less about, I think when you're a kid, it's probably less about getting your parents to fall back in love, but more like that's just one of the things you have to do in order to get back to where you were, you know? And, uh, um, but I think some of the fun is us looking in the eighties, kids looking back on the fifties and sort of laughing, ha ha, but then also seeing how 
he how Marty can actually shape things like the whole skateboard thing in the first movie, the uh, you know, the little scooter and then ripping it off, like all that kind of stuff. I think that's where as kids, we had a lot of fun with that first movie, I would say. And then and then with a sequence like this, the the stakes are clearly very high, like they set them up as very high, like you've got to get and, and very simple. You've yeah. got to get the almanac. So, you know, he he tracks the almanac outside. He's going to get it off of uh, off of Biff, but he's got to do it without alerting Biff. And then Strickland's got it now. So he's got to go and grab that. He doesn't want to run into his mom. And so like very simple sort of uh, suspense kind of stakes. And anybody can relate to that stuff. Yeah. Um, this is a this is actually a really good sequence to to talk about that because it's it's not about dialogue necessarily up until now. It's really just about you know the visuals and following one thing to the other. It's it's that after hours thing. It's it's mm-hmm. every Looney Tunes you know cartoon has some aspect of this where you have to um, you have to figure out. What do I do next to get to my objective? And all of it is just a MacGuffin. And um, any kid can understand a MacGuffin. You don't have to know the particulars about it. You just have to know that the characters care. Right. And to bring it full circle to what Scott was saying, reactions then become super important. Right. You know, as you're following this one thing along, like in this very simple high stakes thing, like everyone's reaction to reaching for the thing. Oh, no, he turns. I can't get it. You know, like all of that becomes super, super crucial. Um, And that, yeah, that definitely is how we understand, especially with the with the little bit of dialogue in these scenes. You know, those reactions become all the more important as part of that visual storytelling. And, and we've talked a lot about the visual storytelling of Zemeckis, uh, Zemeckis and Dean Cundey, the, the cinematographer, and how in these movies and, you know, we're going to be working our way through Zemeckis's filmography on uh, the No Roads edition and sort of comparing and contrasting the way he directed Back to the Future versus how he directed things like Contact or Flight um, or, or God help us, Forrest Gump. Um, and, and, you know, what I've, what I'm realizing at least early on is that Zemeckis really liked to do as much storytelling as possible within a single frame. Uh, he doesn't do a lot of cutting around. He tends to, okay, if, if we put the camera here, how much can we get done visually from this angle right here? Uh, because, you know, he'll, he'll shoot coverage and he'll do a few like detail shots here and there. But for the most part, he really likes to stick to that master shot as much as possible. And I think that that I think that helps a lot with the visual storytelling because you he, he puts he, he Zemeckis and Cundy both make sure that everything you need to know is in this frame that you're looking at right now. It's a, it's it's almost it's it yeah it's it's almost like the filmmaker answer to a, a cartoonist um like a really great uh-huh. cartoonist can get you know can cram as much into a single panel like especially if you're thinking like a newspaper cartoonist and mm-hmm. you have you know three or four different panels to get across a story um you're gonna have to you know think very carefully about what the angle so that you know which characters are in the frame which way are they facing. You know, getting across all that stuff we've been talking about in terms of motivations and obstacles um, yeah. and, and and getting across exposition without, you know, cut. You don't want to cut away like, you know, when when they would make silent films, you know, every once in a while you have to cut away to that um, that frame with the dialogue written mm-hmm. on it. 
um, mm-hmm. just to get there. But as but when you're when you're within that medium, and that's those are the limitations. You want to make sure that you frame your story as such that you have to do that as little as possible. So you're not always cutting away. So if you can find a solution visually, um, that's really good. And that's so it's 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 a it's one of those things where greatness comes out of uh, your limitations. When you are limited to what you can do, um, or you know, in in those times like editing, or you don't have sound that you can work with, um, you end up having to think on your feet and having to compose things very smartly. Um, and then that ends up just being all the richer for it. Like you're solving a problem and it's kind of like a, you know, it's like a, it's like a bottle episode, bottle episodes in television are, uh, you know, uh, an economical thing. Like we can't afford to go on location. Then you get to something like breaking bad and the fly episode. And that bottle episode is one of the best episodes of that whole series. It's my, it's, it's my favorite of the series and it comes out of, AMC didn't have the money, you know, to to give us, you know, for this many location episodes this season. So we've got to think creatively and you end up having like, you know, something really smart. Um, and that's that. I'm always know. a big fan of that. Yeah. Limitations in the creative process can sometimes spark the most creative things. You're absolutely right about the bottle episode that thrusts these characters together um, into that bottle. And, and, and it forces you to play off of them in ways that you might not otherwise think about. Um you know, we, we, I know Scott, you're doing an audio drama and we, uh, Paul, you and I wrote an audio drama and switching from film to an audio only format was its own unique creative thing. How, how do you tell that story? Uh, how do you create the picture you want the people to have, um, in audio, uh, when you don't have the picture yourself, you know, what, what does that mm-hmm. change in terms of dialogue? Um, you know, the, 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 I talked in a previous episode about, you know, um, taking a screenwriting class and having to tell a story with no dialogue as a scene, like, right. And, and how that works. And so all of those things are about taking away one of one element. And then it, it, it that can sometimes be a really great creative spark. Um, you know, and to bring it back to what Scott, you were saying last time uh, about him using the vertical space. I mean, going back that I, 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 that's the very next thing in, in the shot we're looking at here is again, that sort of vertical makeup where you've got, You've got Biff at the top of the stairs. You've got Strickland walking down the stairs away. And to the left and below, you can kind of see the crouching Marty, um, you know, and, and that kind of tells you everything, as you mentioned earlier, in this composition. It tells you everything you need to know, mm-hmm. you know, the, their body language, the way they're positioned and it, what the stakes are and who's going where and who has to follow who, you know, like Marty's got to follow that almanac now. So he, he Biff is no longer of concern to him. That's going to play itself out. He's got to follow the almanac or what right. he thinks and, is the almanac. And as we've talked about before on this show, it, it, that's the reason. I think I think that's one of the reasons why Zemeckis likes these uh, lively – he likes casting these lively actors with big reactions because that's where the excitement, the visual excitement for his films comes from because his – Camera moves are pretty simplistic. I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at what is happening in this next shot, when when Strickland walks away and Marty's following him, we get this. What is basically just the 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 camera is just on a on a on you know a tripod or or probably something much more expensive than a tripod, uh, <laughs> but but it's but it's on a stick and it's just it's panning from one side of of from from the from where they're walking away from the school it pans across the car to the other building of the school where Strickland's office is that's all the camera is doing but within that we get 
we get Marty's following Strickland. Strickland walks off camera. Marty realizes he's about to pass the car where he and his mother are sitting. So he ducks, <laughs> ducks down, you know, slinks across the bottom. We overhear his mother and beta Marty talking. And then he gets up and leaves and follows Strickland toward the other, toward the other building. And that's all done in one panning shot. Mm -hmm. And that's incredible to me. Like that is just a plus composition. And I think that Dean Cundy as a cinematographer, and we talked about him a lot in the first movie, but in this movie, uh, especially like, I just think his framing and composition is just out of this world. Um, just for what he does in a shot, like his shots aren't necessarily, they're very workman shots. You know, we're not talking about, you know, uh, alien, you know, which right, is, which right. is beautiful in a completely different, uh, from a completely different point of view. This is all very like, okay, how much do you need done in this shot? Okay. This is what, this is how we're going to lay this out. And I just think that that's, that's great. I, I, and, and it makes sense that he eventually retired to TV when he stopped making movies uh, in the <laughs> 90s. Uh, yeah. Because it, it, that makes perfect sense that he would go well, to See, TV. now I, I really, I'm desperately want to see Ridley Scott's Back to the Future and, and Robert Zemeckis' <laughs> Alien. That no, would be he, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. You're right? absolutely right. I, I think the word you use is workman. And I think that can kind of have a negative connotation, especially like I think a lot in the 90s, you know, well, Ridley Scott was a precursor to that. But I think in the 90s, you had a lot of people kind of following the Ridley Scott path. And I, I felt like that's where I started to notice filmmaking. And I would go back and look at things and I would go back and look at the uh, like 80s films, like like uh, I think we mentioned in a previous episode, John Hughes films. And if you look at those, they're all just on sticks. And half the time, they're not even pan. They're yeah. just, you know, put it on, put the camera on sticks, point it at this person. We're going to cut away to this static shot, to this static shot. And but but he edited them well and he knew where to put the, the you know, things. And I'm not saying he's uh, this is their great like film compositions. I'm just saying he's a storyteller and right. these were effective stories being told. And so I I think w while workmen like can sometimes have a negative connotation, I think I appreciate that um, a lot more now because I think in some cases uh, we backed away from it a bit now, but I think especially like in the nineties, there was a move towards, uh, you know, this sort of, uh, uh, cinematic style where it was sort of the style over substance and, and, and people were more in love with the shots they could make, uh, than, than the storytelling, um, aspect of it. And, you know, so I, I, I appreciate that when I see it, when you can do a lot with a little and you don't overdo it, you know, but you keep it nice and simple and just get your story told. In many ways, I think, I think Zemeckis, uh, and, and in turn, Cundy, uh, is sort of that, that team is sort of like the reverse Edgar Wright, you know, Edgar Wright uh, is a director <laughs> that I love and, but Edgar Wright, he, he pulls, he pulls all of his energy from his films by making the camera as much of a character as everyone yeah. else in the movie. And Zemeckis does the opposite. Uh, he makes the actors be these huge larger than life characters. And he just lets the camera like. He just lets them fill the camera, like just do your thing and then we'll capture it, you know? And, and I just, mm -hmm. I think as you know, ultimately I think you get a very similar tone from back to the future versus an Edgar Wright movie. You know, they both have like a, a similar sort of energy to them. Um, but they're doing it in the exact like polar opposite ways, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And and to be clear, like, I don't think any of us are saying one is better than the other. I no. think that they all have their uses. And I think that, 
you know, uh, if you look at cinema as coming from, you know, like a the- theatrical background, you know, everyone had to sort of, uh, w- w- Paul was saying in a previous episode, sort of over overact or overemphasize um, these very exa- exaggerated motions for one reason. But I think the evolution of, you know, film, we could see, hey, you know what, the camera can be a character, or we can move it different ways, we can, we can use motion, we can do things with the camera to, to, we don't have, we're not just, we don't have to just put it on sticks and point it at, you know, the people and let the actors do it all. So I think, but, but I just think that there's choice, they're just choices that you make. And, um, you know, one's not good or bad. But in this case, I think this really works for what they wanted to do in, in Back to the Future, you know, and it just goes back to what you were saying in previous, uh, uh, episodes, uh, previous minutes about, you know, the sort of the big reactions and, 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 and sort of the camera, yeah, being very simple and almost invisible and letting it reside a lot in the, in the actors. And, and I, I think that really works for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that brings us to that, that, uh, moment too. And I had to listen to it when I was doing my notes earlier today, I had to listen to it multiple times and turn the volume all the way up. Cause I couldn't really make out what she was saying. Uh, but there is a moment where, uh, just as Marty realizes he's about to pass the car uh, that he is sitting in with his mother, um, he hears a line that came from the first movie, uh, which is, you know, right after he sees uh, that Lorraine is smoking and drinking and um, she's not the uh, the innocent girl that uh, she made <laughs> herself out to be. Um when he realizes that and, and tells her, you know, to stop or whatever, whatever it is he says. And she says, you know, Jesus, you sound like my mother. And that was a beat that we cut away on in the first movie. Um, because, you know, <laughs> Marty's just like, you're, you're a mother. What? Like, <laughs> um, yeah. it was a really great gag to cut away on. But here we get to keep going. And right after that, Lorraine says, when I have kids, I'm going to let them do anything they want, anything at all, which is, I just, I love that line because it's such a teenager thing to say. <laughs> um, because, you know, you don't know until you have kids, like eh, maybe probably not. That's not going to be what happens. So, <laughs> um, but uh, I just, I really appreciate that line from, uh, from Lorraine. Um, and then we, uh, I, I love this detail. So Marty runs into the other building and she, he sees Strickland go into his office and he sees the sign. And there's a couple of things I love about this. So, so Strickland's first name is Stanford. And so his sign says SS Strickland, which just, I love that he is like a battleship. Like I just, <laughs> <laughs> I really love that. And I love that he his name uh, doesn't say his name doesn't say uh, principal. It says discipline. Um, right. That's, that's the department he works in is discipline. Uh, love it. I really I really I'm not that. sure I'd ever noticed that before. It's yeah. such a quick thing. Yeah. Uh, but once you're looking at it minute by minute, you're seeing all these things. Yeah, I love I love the, the alliterative nature of his name where I don't know what the his first name is Stanford. But we don't know his middle name, right? Right. No, we don't know his middle name. But whatever it is, it's going to be something like Stanford Samuel Strickland or something like that. But it's right. got that nice J. Jonah Jameson uh, right. thing going for it. Uh, but yeah, the discipline is in big white letters. And then I'm looking at the frame right now and it's like on the office door as well. I love that. <laughs> it's really great. That's great. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, so, so Dave, you brought it up earlier. Um, but, uh, talk about the uh, audio drama that you and you and Paul worked on. Yeah. Uh, so it's a few years old now. Um, I think we started it back in, um, 2007. So we're coming up on our 10 year anniversary, but if mm-hmm. folks are interested, um, and perhaps they listen to your, uh, uh, geek by night, uh, audio drama or something like that, uh, you can go check out, uh, Wormwood, uh, which is, you can, uh, find on iTunes, um, or you can go to the website wormwoodshow.com, which we haven't done a lot of maintenance for a while, but it's still there and all the episodes are accessible. It's just not a very exciting looking website, um, but you're there to listen. Uh, and that is uh, an occult mystery. Uh, it is sort of my love letter to Twin Peaks and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and a lot of things. It was, uh, I was doing some short films and um, was, you know, it was taking a long time to make, you know, you, you you know, Scott, that you spend a lot of time oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, setting up the lighting and, and doing all this stuff, and it could take you two hours, and then the the uh, woman runs down the hallway for, for five seconds, and then you've got your shot, right? And now mm-hmm. it's like, okay, strike and set up again in a new location and, you know, move on. And, and so a lot of effort can go into like a five-minute, 10-minute, 20-minute movie. Um, while I was waiting for all those things, I started listening to podcasts, and at the time it was the iFanboy podcast and some others. And uh, I realized that there was this platform out there for audio drama. And um, I'm like, well, what would I, what could I do if I, if I wrote my, if we could do our own show? So uh, my co-creator, Jeremy Rogers, and I kind of put together like all the crazy things that we'd want to do, you know, and it ended up being this occult mystery uh, that we called Wormwood, which is about uh, Dr. Xander Crow, a former uh, psychologist uh, of some renown who uh, fails to exercise, uh, 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 a child who has been, uh, possessed by a demon. And in doing so, his whole world crumbles as he realizes that everything he thought was true is not. And, uh, he ends up as sort of a washed up exorcist. Um, and when we find him, he is leaving Los Angeles because he's failed again. It's time to exercise the uh, daughter of a mob boss in LA. Um, and he leaves to the small town of Wormwood, uh, where he is gets involved in all kinds of occult shenanigans, and uh, we we ran it for three seasons. Um, Paul came on in the second season, right, Paul? Uh, sounds right. I think so. Um, and started writing with us, and I think he had a blast. I hope he had a blast. But I did. It's one of those where production wise, like I think you know, there are always things that I hear that I'm like, oh, we could have done better with this or that. But I'm very proud of us being able to write this like long form serialized mystery story that had all the crazy creepy elements in it that we wanted. And, um, you know, people still find it today and send me messages saying, I just listened to this. Are you ever going to do more? And, you know, um, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm just, I'm so thankful that people still find it and still listen to it. So, you know, uh, if people want something to, some kind of audio drama, go check it out. Yeah, I was definitely uh, a listener back in the day. And, you know, there there are a lot of audio dramas out there. Um, and I I would I, I didn't stick with any of them. Wormwood was actually the only one that I ever stuck with. Oh, uh, and I, I really like it a lot. And uh, you guys uh, you guys should definitely check it out. It's it's much more um, on the on the serious, weird kind of side. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As opposed to as opposed to where where Geek by Night is, but I, I think it it definitely serves a, a similar audience, and and you guys should definitely check it out if you like Geek by Night. Check out Wormwood. It is. I think I think if people like uh, Stranger Things stuff like that, uh, especially sure. you know lately, um, I, th- I think uh, Wormwood would scratch that itch. 
Definitely. Oh my God. When I watched Stranger Things, I totally wanted to do like a Wormwood 1983. Sure. <laughs> like I, I really wanted to do like, oh, what would the story be in the 80s? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like as Sheriff Bradley, who's our prominent character, as as all small town uh, dramas have a prominent sheriff character. I, I was like, would he be the deputy, a deputy in the 80s? Oh my God. And I started for the first time, started thinking about how we would revisit that town and do it as a period piece and come up with some whole other uh, uh, mystery for that. Anyway. It'd be like uh, Fargo, <laughs> like uh, like like the latest, the second season of Fargo being. Uh, yeah, yeah, I kind of would. <laughs> yeah. well, that would be phenomenal. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you guys for joining me, uh, Paul. I, I guess we have to say goodbye to you today. Yeah, I'm um, sorry, but, but uh, it's been fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, and we'll definitely we'll have to have you back for for part three because part three is nothing but western fun. Yes. Um, <laughs> Back to the Future 3 is my favorite Back to the Future. (laughs) I know that's not true for a lot of people, but uh, it is mine. We'll definitely have to bring you back then. And uh, and Dave, uh, we can can hold on to you for another day? Sure, why not? All right, great. Um, So we'll be back tomorrow. uh, But in the – Paul, do you have anything else to plug before you go? Uh, Go check out uh, panels.net and O-Comics. Talk about comic books every week uh, with my co-host Preethi Chibber. Um, Last guest of the show, Preethi Chibber. We're gonna talk. Yeah, we're gonna talk about uh, Suicide Squad. Um, we have a book of the month uh, for the month of August. Is gonna be uh, Vision Volume One by uh, Tom King, Gabriel uh, w- uh, Wada, and uh, Jordi Belair on colors. Um, one of the best Marvel books to come out uh, ever, I think. So oh, I, love, I love that book. Def- yeah. So even, even if you do, even if you don't check out the podcast, uh, definitely check out the book. It's a uh, it's it's great. All right. Well, uh, you can go to our website, duelinggenre.com, uh, where you can check out our other podcasts, The Doctor's Companion, our Doctor Who podcast, Geek by Night, our original audio drama about uh, about five friends who work at a comic book store and get superpowers. Um, and uh, go check out our Patreon page at duelinggenre.com slash support, uh, where if you support us at the $5 level or higher, you receive all of the bonus content that we put up every month. And there's quite a bit. So go to, go check that out. Um, including exclusive podcasts, things like that. And of course, special thanks to Patreon associate producers, David Jeffries and leaper 182. And we will be back tomorrow with minute 80. Bye.